Hi everyone, I'm Shampa Chowdhury and I'm the current second year MBA candidate at the Warden School of the University of Pennsylvania. And you're listening to the Warden FinTech Club podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lavlin Sedu, the co-founder, president, and chief strategy officer at Bank Mobile, the largest and fastest growing mobile first bank, offering checking and savings accounts, personal loans, and access to over 55,000 surcharge free ATMs. Bank Mobile is aimed at helping the underbanked, millennials, and middle-income Americans have an affordable, effortless, and financially empowering banking experience. She's also the member of the Bank Mobile Board of Directors and the director and founder of the Bank Mobile Foundation, where she identifies and funds budding entrepreneurs and organizations that promote financial literacy. Before becoming a well-recognized name in the fintech world, she actually earned her MBA right here at the Warden School as part of the class of 2013. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, Lovelyn. Thank you. So happy to be here. Excited to get this conversation started. Before we dive into all things fintech, would love to take us back to getting to know more about you and how your life prior to Bank Mobile, including your experience here at Warden, mm-hmm. got you to enter the fintech world. Sure. So I think it's a culmination of many different experiences, to be honest. As I reflect back, I wonder, you know, how did I get into this? And, you know, one thing is I come from a banking family. So my father is a banker um, and I never thought I would follow in his footsteps. But I think by osmosis, you know, maybe I got some of the bug. Um, And so that's some background where dinner conversations, you know, could could potentially be around this quite often. Um, And then I went off to college at Harvard. It was the first bank account that I opened on by myself. And I remember just walking into a bank branch, taking about 20 minutes to just open a simple checking account. And it was very just not memorable. I don't remember feeling empowered or feeling that I had a trusted banking partner that could help me navigate my financial life. And this was my first experience sort of being financially independent to some degree. So that really just stuck out as, hey, there's, there's room for improvement here. And then I went off, I was at Lehman Brothers after school when I graduated in 08. And my first day on the job was a Lehman bankruptcy. And that was a very interesting time to start my career. I think it showed me the fragility of the American financial system, how many people were sort of suffering. And it really showed me that so many people are living paycheck to paycheck. And and banks and financial institutions that are really supposed to partner with Americans, help them fulfill their dreams, help them to get on strong financial foundation, weren't really able to do so and and the country was suffering. And so I think that was another sort of turning point in making me sort of feel that there is a different way to do banking that can help people. Uh, Came to Wharton and I remember taking, uh, I think it's Ian Malik's entrepreneurship class and just getting the entrepreneur bug where it's like, hey, there's, there's, pain points that can be solved. Financial services is what I knew. And, and I definitely, you know, felt that there was a new trend taking place in, in digital banking and people and consumers were changing their behaviors and there was a new way to do banking. And that summer I was at Booz and Company consulting in financial services and I helped launch a digital bank mm-hmm. from a strategic standpoint for a large financial institution. So it was after that experience that I decided, hey, maybe it's time for me to get into the space and be a mover and shaker and do something. That's super exciting. And it's interesting you mentioned the financial crisis because that is something, especially in the space for digital banks coming up, it's it's a trend that 
be able to notice that, of course, it was a trying time for the financial services industry, but in some ways it sparked a lot of fintech mm-hmm. growth where people were looking for an alternative mm-hmm. for incumbents that otherwise wouldn't be questioned. Yeah. So I thought it would be interesting to start by just laying the landscape for what this digital banking space looks like in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Because we hear about a lot of different types of players from, you mentioned digital banks being launched by existing banks. Mm-hmm. We hear of neo banks, challenger banks. And while there is a lot of activity in the space in the U.S., it hasn't quite yet reached, you know, a lot of the traction and acceleration that we've seen in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So in Europe, you, you've seen like a quicker growth and uptake in this space. Mm-hmm. So just from an industry expert, it would be great to understand a little bit more about the landscape and where you see this evolving. Sure. I, I do think that the U.S. has been slower to adopt a digital banking model. We saw sort of Simple be one of the first players to take a step back in 2007. And I think they were a little too early. I, I think that people weren't ready yet for the digital banking sort of revolution. But I do look to them today as still sort of the first mover to sort of say, hey, there's a better way to do banking. Consumers are upset. It's not being fair. Their customer sort of pain points are not being met. And there's a digital way to sort of address this. In Europe, it's been much more faster moving. We're seeing Monzo, we're seeing Revolut, we're seeing Number 26, um, Starling, the, the list goes on. And I think that part of the reason why things have flourished so well there is really because of the regulatory environment. It's just not as stringent. Uh, they're much more open to innovation. I think that countries being closer together, there's a lot more movement of money, movement of people, and so they've had to adapt to that. And that's made the regulation maybe more lenient to be able to facilitate that sort of movement. And that's really helped the digital banks flourish there. And now a lot of them um, this year are entering the U.S. So we've seen Number 26 launch their beta. We've seen Monzo do the same, Revolut launching soon. And so we'll see, you know, how they perform in the U.S. In the U.S., I really view us. Uh, we're a little bit different. We're not fully direct to consumer. We have a B2B2C angle, and so we're differentiated from some of these digital banks that are direct to consumer, like Chime, Vero. But, you know, Chime has gotten a good name for themselves. They're, they're growing really well. It's unfortunate when things happen, like the outage last week, that sort of puts a damper on, hey, can digital banks really sustain Channel and it. perform and live up to the expectation? But I think they'll overcome this, and I think there's a lot of room for growth. Right. It's exciting times this year, particularly, because in some ways, obviously, there's more competition in the space, but it also means that it's gaining traction and acceleration, like you said. So coming to Bank Mobile, would love to hear about, you touched on how you guys defer a little bit, the B2B2C model, etc. Mm-hmm. Would just love to hear about what is Bank Mobile from, from your perspective? What was the vision when you started it? Mm-hmm. And how has it been evolving? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think it was very obvious to us that consumer needs and behaviors were rapidly changing, um, and banks were really slow to adapt to that change. We're, we're seeing consumers walk into a bank branch one time a year versus interacting with their, with their mobile device for banking 20 to 30 times a month. We're seeing people fed up with fees. You know, 48% of consumers that switch banks are saying it's because of fees. We're obviously seeing the more digital native generations like millennials like ourselves and the younger generation that are really just looking for a more tech-savvy, customer-service-oriented experience and are demanding more, and banks really weren't living up to that. So I thought 
definitely from a consumer experience standpoint, there was a lot to be solved for. And the basics of banking are still not being met in terms of, you know, the average checking account fee in the U.S. is about 10 bucks. You know, the average American is paying $160 a year in just checking account fees. Mm-hmm. People are being paid, you know, eight basis points on their money in a checking account. So the table stakes aren't even being met yet by the big banks and, and what's out there. So anyway, there was a consumer experience pain point, many of them that I felt that we could address. And then two, there was a business model inefficiency that we saw, which is bank branches on average are opening one net new checking account per branch per week. Mm -hmm. So 52 net checking accounts annually, which is not a very exponentially growing customer (laughs) acquisition strategy. And the branch-based model is the primary customer acquisition strategy for many banks in the U.S. today. It's the primary channel still. And so... Uh, we felt by able to leverage, you know, leveraging technology to be able to bring down the cost of acquisition and to get much higher volume acquisition as well. And we started out as a direct-to-consumer strategy back in 2015 when we mm-hmm. launched, and I still thought the timing wasn't right for it. I think the timing's ripe more so now, where mm-hmm. people are ready for, you know, a consumer bank and direct-to-consumer. And, and, and so we were a little early. We grew quite significantly still in our first year, but there was a lot of small balance accounts, there was a lot of fraud that we had to deal with. And so we pivoted after a year and a half where we're like, hey, you know, what is, what is our vision? What is our goal? We wanna make banking more affordable. We want it to be a better product than what exists today, easier to use. And we wanna have a growth in a net income model that is at least equal to, if not better than traditional banks. And the sort of volumes that we were seeing, the fraud that we were seeing, it wasn't going to get us there. Right. And so that's why we pivoted to a B2B2C model, which is what we're doing today. Got it. So talking about that B2B2C component, we know you have partnerships with a lot of universities. Mm-hmm. Could you talk to a little bit like who are these partners and how has that kind of changed your approach to how moving from a direct-to-consumer to a B2B2C? Yeah. So... <clears throat> I always say that we, we're in the business of solving consumers or our partners' pain points, and we just happen to be in banking. And you know, for higher education, colleges and universities, one of their biggest pain points is sending payments between themselves and their students. It's burdensome, there's a lot of overhead, there's a lot of compliance because there's financial aid involved in that. And so we help save our clients or our, our universities almost $200,000 a year by helping take over this and with our platform. Right. And in return, you know, these students get to choose do they want to receive these payments from the school ACH to an existing bank account or open a bank mobile account. And we're by far, you know, a very compelling standalone account for these students, better than what they could get elsewhere. And so it becomes an easy choice and it becomes an easy acquisition strategy mm-hmm. for us where we're almost getting paid to acquire accounts versus other banks going on campus at schools and paying millions of dollars to be on mm. campus and sponsor the arena and sponsor the branch and having the ATM. It's a completely different model, and we've turned it on its head. Right. And so that's how you start getting that high-volume acquisition at a very low cost. Right. I love that you touched on that because cu- customer acquisition and retention is such a challenge for a lot of, especially, you know, 
challenger banks or new lending arms or, or folks that are looking to acquire these underbanked folks into in, into the fold because acquiring them is costly and sometimes they churn or are not high quality. Mm-hmm. So it seems like going this B2B2C model has helped you overcome that barrier a bit. Yep. Organizationally though, internally, how do you develop that muscle? Because it feels like a different muscle mm-hmm. to be ready to go after customers directly mm-hmm. versus now switching over to going after bigger institutions, working with perhaps lower processes and selling to them. Mm -hmm. So how do you develop, because pivoting is something a lot of entrepreneurs have to do. How do you develop that that muscle to pivot? Yeah, I think one is just determination and, and two is like as an entrepreneur, you will always have challenges and you always have to pivot and you have to look at new opportunities. So it's being open minded about new opportunities and we had our parent company already had a relationship with this we actually through an acquisition were able to help build some of the technology that helps us service higher education Mm. so it's also looking at the opportunities and partnerships that you might already have access to or you know an introduction to and we leveraged that and we built out you know it was never thought of as a customer acquisition strategy for banking and we turned that sort of model tweaked it enhanced it and were able to take advantage of it. And then once we had built that, we had built technology that could really roll out and help other non-banks get into banking. Right. And we sold that idea, and T-Mobile was our next sort of white label that we Mm. rolled out. And again, it's like our partners, we try to understand what are their pain points. And, you know, T-Mobile and many other telecom companies, retailers, etc are always looking at how do you continue to attract engage and retain customers right and financial services can always be one component of that strategy especially when the demographic you're serving may be underserved in that area which many americans are right so so that's where we are today no that's that's truly impressive i think some of the other tenets that you started off with one is the student focus so starting with the student population, which Mm -hmm. is largely underbanked, Mm -hmm. and also this focus on good customer experience, which you've touched on a bunch of times, Mm -hmm. having features like rewards. Mm -hmm. I believe you guys had a passport program where they got kind of stamps for good behavior Mm -hmm. and kind of encouraging that high frequency of interaction with your bank, which was not happening before. How has that stayed the same or evolved as you've gone through these pivots and growth as a business yeah I think that it's always remained central to who we are I mean the business of banking is attracting engaging and retaining customers and it's all about getting the direct deposit and getting the paycheck in because you know that becomes the primary banking relationship and and that's also how we make money mm-hmm. and so <clears throat> In our B2B2C model, we always think about how do we interject the checking account into a process that exists where it makes sense to to put the the bank account in there because we want to make it seamless and easy Mm. for the consumer to be like, hey, it makes sense for me to open this account at this moment. And so whether that's opening a new wireless account and and having synergies between the wireless account and the bank account going forward and, and making that sort of easy and whether it's the student saying, hey, I'm getting this payment. This is a very compelling bank account. This right. makes sense. And so you lower the friction yeah. um, and you create an opportunity where you can, you know, really solve, you know, make it easy for them. And then it's about, you know, how do you direct them to 
firstly build an emotional connection with this account where it's helpful to them you know what sort of features what sort of functionality that gets them to want to engage with this account adding a financial education component we have financial coaching available etc because you really need them to be like hey this is not just an account that I got money in once but this mm-hmm. is a repeatable one that I want to keep for life and then it's about expanding products that they also have access to so we started with a checking account we have a savings account and then we extend it into credit products where we have the credit card today, personal loans, and student refinance. Right. So it sounds like it's really understanding the customer, what they need, and also the journey that they go through so that you're touching them at points where they actually think to need you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's balancing that kind of getting in front of them when they need you, but also showing them new ways they could use you, mm-hmm. like financial and literacy. growing with them right. and their financial needs. So that's great. I think... You know, clearly Bank Mobile has a uh, interesting view on how to remain customer focused, even when you're maybe not directly mm-hmm. touching them as much and going through an intermediary. And I think it's a great example of how to mm-hmm. grow a customer focused business that way. Yeah. You, you touched before on, in the beginning days a little bit on risk. And that's something we hear a lot about with non-banking entities, new banks, um, especially now that you're in credit products as well. How is risk something that you've managed? Are there, you know, what innovations, technologies, et cetera, do you think about when you're managing risk? Because I'd imagine at every stage of your business, mm-hmm. what risk means is different. Like you said, in starting stages, they were fraudulent accounts or, you know, verification risks. And now it may be more ongoing as you're growing how do you grow the pie of your customer base with while managing a certain risk level? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, banking is really a risk management business. And so, you know, the, the, the comment I made about fraud, fraud never stops, actually. So, you know, digital banks, real, you know, incumbent banks, I think that, to be honest, if we were all honest, one of our biggest risks holistically as an industry is fraud and cyber you know cyber fraud right and so that's something that we constantly have to be iterating on and staying ahead you know I was just speaking to an FBI agent that we brought in as a speaker last week and he told me that they busted these guys that were trying to rip off a bank and they had literally been in front of computers for 23 hours they don't sleep and it's that sort of work ethic that they're you know that the fraudsters are working with and you have to balance out that's a business that they've created you know and so you have to work just as hard to sort of uh, be able to fight against it and so we're constantly looking at how do you use new technologies you know machine learning etc to do more risk-based scoring to really identify and and allow for good customers that you could maybe identify as lower risk to have more availability, better holds, be able to move, you know, move money faster and et cetera versus those that are higher risk and you create more parameters around them and maybe they don't have that sort of flexibility as much as some other customers. So cyber fraud is one area we constantly look at. Uh, We're in a regulated industry, so I think that Regulators play a, an important role to make sure that we're protecting consumers, um, always looking out for their interest. And I think that's very noble and I think it's important to do. You know, I think it's, we spend a lot of time, we have a compliance team of like 30 people uh, to make sure that whether it's UDAP risk, unfair practices, 
you know, that we're making sure that we're monitoring and that we have a great dialogue and great relationship with regulators to keep them abreast because what we're doing is very innovative and different and we're our first mover in it. So it's a, it's a process of sort of holding each other's hands and walking it through and making sure that we're measuring risk constantly, we're uh, conversing with the regulators constantly and we have that strong relationship. Yeah, that makes sense. How is that experience of working very closely with the regulators Mm -hmm. and especially as a startup that may be smaller and not have the same access as big banks do to certain regulatory bodies Mm -hmm. how do you navigate that space well i think that the regulators are on top of it so it's not even they come to us you know and it's like we we are expected to you know we have two million accounts today so that is that does put us in the top 15 banks in the country in terms of number of consumer checking accounts so that is scalable enough that we are on the radar and that it's important for us to have that regulatory relationship and uh, we're constantly in touch with our regulators and constantly learning from each other i'm actually attending in philadelphia next week uh, a fintech event that's hosted by our regulators so they're constantly innovating and learning as well and we're working with them yeah I ask because a lot of people who've considered being an entrepreneur in fintech particularly time and again we've heard the concern around regulation being a huge barrier in their mind like just not even knowing where to start and whether there are certain things you can do because it is such a highly regulated industry Mm -hmm. so I wonder you know back when you were starting this kind of in a similar place with no experience starting something before. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you think about regulation? and Was that a daunting challenge for you to overcome? Well, I think that the step that we took was that we became a division of another bank, you mm-hmm. know, and we were incubated by that bank. Right. They already had a bank charter. Mm-hmm. They already had regulatory relationships. And so we sort of, you know, a lot of these neobanks are now trying to get a bank charter. And we sort of did it the other way, where we started with the bank charter. And so we had the infrastructure in place, and we had the relationships in place, and we had the charter. And so it was very seamless and easy uh, to start that relationship and that process pretty fast. Right. That brings up an interesting point of relationship with incumbents or existing banking system. Mm -hmm. Because you see different models of this, especially even across the world. In the U.S., you see a lot of newer banks being pure competitors to incumbents where they're kind of fighting for the same kind of uh, customer base Mm -hmm. whereas in some more emerging markets and yet included you see a lot more of these partnerships where incumbents are partnering with new players to start new arms of you know parts of the pot to reach parts of the population that they Mm -hmm. can't reach in a cost-effective manner and so what's your view on this of like how as a startup in this space, as a fintech in this space, mm-hmm. with all these large incumbents also trying to move in this space, mm-hmm. how do you see them in the competitive landscape? Are there more of kind of collaborators who can provide infrastructure or do you see them more as kind of competitors that you need to uh, fight for market share with? I think both. And, uh, you know, people often ask me, like, what are your thoughts on sort of the industry? And the reality is, is the top banks have, you know, 50% of the assets and they're only, you know, a small proportion of the total banks in the U.S. They make up, you know, less than 1% of all the banks that exist. Mm-hmm. And then the other 99.9% actually of banks had the other 50%. So the top banks have massive market share. 
a lot of the growth that's taking place, the growth in deposits, the big banks are winning as well. So they're doing well, and they have a lot of capital to invest in technology, and they've accelerated their investment in this space, and they are getting better and better. So that being said, I still think there's dissatisfaction with the big banks. Those stats that I shared with you before are the reality, where you know the average checking account monthly fee is still $10, and the average Americans being charged $160 a year mm-hmm. in checking account fees. You know, the average sort of overdraft is $34. The average ATM, you know, fee is going above four, you know, $4. So everything is, the table stakes are still not being met by the big banks. And so there's dissatisfaction. So number one is I feel like we can still win deposits from the larger banks, even though they are improving and doing well and have a lot of capital to invest in technology. Um, but we still view them as an opportunity to steal market share from. And um, I think that many of them are collaborating. You see them making investments in in fintechs. Um, we saw, you know, I think Moneyline is, you know, one of the sort of ta- challenger banks coming up, and I think PNC or Capital One invested in them. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing these just sort of strategic alliances happening as well. So I think it's competitor and collaboration that's taking place. Um, and I think the 99.9% of other banks, you know, there's, we have 6,000 banks in the U.S. almost. Yeah. They're the ones that are really struggling mm. to acquire deposits, to acquire loans, acquire new customers. And I think, you know, there's a massive opportunity. Uh, you know, many of them are very branch-based for the acquisition right. to win a lot of market share from them in the future. So I really feel that we're well-positioned on both sides of the spectrum to yeah. sort of steal market share. Yeah, I think that that's very helpful you know, contextualization of the the banking industry um, as a whole. So I think kind of looking forward to what exists out there in the future, you've mentioned a bunch about technology, mm-hmm. and um, we'd really like to break it down in, in this fintech equation. Where does technology play into bank mobile story. So you've mentioned a couple of things. You've mentioned machine learning on the risk side for risk-based scoring. You've mentioned obviously the mobile first interface, the actual application through which people interact. Where has technology played in your story? And also would like to understand how do you make that decision of whether that's something you want to build expertise for internally or whether there are other people, uh, other players who've developed that expertise that you can leverage through a partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know we're a tech company, and so technology is very important to us. We've built our technology from the ground up. Again, in our B two B two C model, our value proposition really is: there's a bunch of non banks that have a use case for financial services, and without them having to become banks, we can provide the technology platform and the whole infrastructure to roll out a bank mm. in months, not years. And so what allows us to do that is obviously our operations and the infrastructure we build, but our technology. And so when we thought about our technology, we actually went with a core. I don't know if you're, mm-hmm. you know, every bank has a core to sort of right. manage all the accounts, et cetera. And we made a choice to go with, you could say a legacy core, which mm-hmm. is FIS. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so much robustness and reliability with a core that's been in market for years and hundreds of millions of customers are using it. Right. And so we've built technology on top of the core, which we call our hub, which allows for some of the limitations of a legacy core, 
you know, some of those limitations often are it's not customer centric. You can't do things in real time. You can't do customer centric sort of contextual sort of messaging and, you know, et cetera. And so we built the hub to make sure that we're still very customer centric mm-hmm. and delivering on our value proposition. And then we have our hub placed in the cloud. And so there's, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, should banks be in the cloud or not? And we've chosen to be in the cloud. And it really helps with our model of being able to roll out banks for our partners. Right. So having the cloud infrastructure is scalable, it's repeatable, it's almost like a copy and paste where you can go on to your next partner. And so we've really built a technology stack that allows us to deliver on our B2B2C value proposition, which is rolling out a bank for our partner. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective into how you think about technology. Now, I'm interested to hear from your background, did you have a technical background and and starting a technology company, how did you equip yourself with a team and an organization that can help you grow a technology company successfully? Yeah, so I do not have a technology background. So everything that I've learned, I've learned as I've done it. And it's an interesting question. And, you know, I think the most important thing is to build a team around you that has the expertise that you really need to execute and to have really smart people around you. Um, And I think that having basic knowledge of technology is very important still. So to understand how your technology is running, what technology you're on, what are sort of the cost models for the different technologies that you're on, I think that is still very important and something that, you know, I've learned over time uh, to be able to run a tech company. But I think, you know, we're at Wharton, we've talked about leadership and, and leadership is about vision, it's about execution, it's about recruiting a great team. And so I don't think that people have to have a very strong technical background to be able to run a tech company, but I would encourage them to learn about the basics of technology so that they are capable of working with a team that's executing on its technology sort of value proposition. Right. So it's finding that balance between surrounding yourself with very capable people, but also having just enough information Mm -hmm. so you can keep on top of it. Yes. Uh, so you mentioned your team, and I can't help but notice like the minute you even go on Bank Mobile's website, it feels like there's a very specific culture that bleeds through. And so I would love to hear a little bit about, you know, what do you see as your team culture at Bank Mobile, and how have you kind of fostered that? Yeah, so I think that, so so one, I think we think of ourselves as sort of movers and shakers. So, you know, we we are in sort of this legacy, highly regulated sort of industry. And I think that we have a culture and a mindset that's always questioning things. So we don't take the status quo and we're always sort of looking for what is an easier, better, more cost efficient way, more customer centric way uh, to approach this. So I think that's integral to our culture. And I think that that came on its own just because of what we stand for and why we came into business. So it wasn't that hard to sort of roll that out. I think we have a culture of having fun. You know, I think it's important that uh, you have a culture where people come in and they feel like the work is meaningful and that they have colleagues that they respect and that they work with and that they enjoy. And so, you know, whether that's, you know, having a popcorn sort of afternoon or a beer pong thing and and (laughs) sort of like, you know, making sure that we add and, and make sure we get together and we enjoy those moments together. 
has been a big part. You know, it's also a challenge. We have various different locations. We have our tech team in Radnor, Pennsylvania. We have myself and a small team in New York, and we have our operations or student business in New Haven. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's also important to sort of recognize some of the limitations and difficulties and we aren't in one location. If people can do one location, I would recommend that. <laughs> but it, it has been an extra challenge to sort of create a cohesive culture and communication when we're in different locations. But a dual location strategy also has its benefits and cost efficiencies. Right. Um, no, I, I think especially having a strong team culture with social events, et cetera, given that your team is dispersed also functionally since, mm-hmm. you know, tech and operations are separate and mm-hmm. you may have a smaller team that does different things in mm-hmm. New York. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels critical to make sure that the business all operates together and innovates yeah. together. So it's great to hear an example of how you've done that. Mm-hmm. Speaking about what's ahead, what would you say are some of the kind of big opportunities that you're super excited about and what are some of the challenges that kind of still keep you up at night or that you're worried about? Yeah, I mean, the big opportunity is, you know, we're making a bet that white label banking has a role, that there are non-banks out there that really feel that financial services could be a critical part of their strategy. And we've seen that, you know, in higher ed, we've seen it in telecom with with T-Mobile, and we have a lot of other industry verticals and companies that we're talking to in the pipeline. And we are launching workplace banking, which is an idea that a lot of HR, you know, the HR portion of companies are really looking at how do you get financial wellness into an organization, which has become very important. There's so many stats that sort of prove that when you reduce financial stress, you know, productivity, uh, et cetera, increase, retention increases. And so we're rolling out um, our financial sort of wellness with our bank account, with financial education, with financial coaching into HR programs across the country. And so that's a huge opportunity for us. And we're really looking at, you know, how do we expand that and how do we grow that? And, you know, future white label opportunities that are currently in the pipeline. It's a long lead time to get something to market. And we're excited about, uh, you know, the opportunities that we have. And hopefully we have a very large and exciting sort of future partner to announce. Yeah, that that's great. It's an innovation in the business model of bringing basically entities that don't that we wouldn't consider as providers of financial mm-hmm. services into the loop by way of the fact that you've now developed this expertise in creating a banking technology interface mm-hmm. quickly. So it's interesting to see that evolution from kind of being that direct to consumer yeah. student interface to now being able to use that expertise and provide it to mm-hmm. other kind of institutions. So we're excited to see what what's next. What are some of the kind of challenges that you're still, besides, I mean, you touched on the potential for this, uh, obviously the flip side of this, of uh, growth not happening to, you know, fruition. What are some of the kind of challenges that are coming to mind? Well, as I mentioned, I think fraud is always a challenge. So that's something that will always keep me up at night and yeah. it's something that we constantly have to uh, be one step ahead. I think that, you know, banking really you want to have that primary banking relationship that I talked to you about. And as I said, I think that our strategy is really good about getting the checking account first and getting that direct deposit before we open up to other products. And we've created our strategy to help us do that. But again, to get customers to really engage in this being their primary bank account, 
Yeah, it's something that we constantly have to evolve and be creative and, and get more users to sort of engage with us at that level. So, so that's a constant sort of learning and, and growth opportunity. And I think that we talked a little bit about regulation. I think regulation, you know, as I said, plays an important role, protects consumers. And I think that it's important for us to continue to have healthy relationship with regulators so that we can balance the things that are important from a regulatory framework and still be innovative and grow in very interesting ways. Right. That balance between being financial services, managing risk, mm-hmm. while still fostering fast innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're excited to see how you tread that balance mm-hmm. coming into the future. I mean, I have to admit this interview is kind of particularly special to me, uh, partly because fintech, just given that it's a confluence of finance and technology, mm-hmm. uh, there are issues with kind of not having as diverse representation in the leadership. And me personally, as a woman of color looking to lead in the fintech um, industry, it means a lot to have a role model who's done this before and can you know, represent an underrepresented community in fintech leadership. Mm-hmm. And so would love to hear from you how that experience has been leading in a space, especially working with a lot of financial services institutions where representation is a problem, working with other technology institutions where that's, you know, where women and especially women of color are underrepresented. Um, How have you navigated that space? What are some challenges you've faced? And if you have any kind of key takeaways or insights to share from that experience? Sure. So, so firstly, like, you know, there's difficulties associated with it, but I want to start with a positive. So I think that you know, Bank Mobile is, I've used the word mover or shaker or disruptor in this space. And I think that being a young, or at least when I started, I felt young, young <laughs> minority sort of aligns very well with the fact that we are a disruptor and a mover and shaker. So it seemed very in alignment with our business model and what we were trying to do. And there was congruence there. And I think that that sort of made a statement in itself. Um, so I found that helpful and, you know, a differentiator. That being said, I think that, you know, the the stats don't lie. I think that the number of women that are part of, you know, Fortune 500 companies, the, the income disparity uh, for women, the, the lack of sort of VC funding, I think 2% of all funding goes to women-funded companies. You know, that's a reality. And that is the state that we're operating in. Um, and so, you know, some of the things that sort of have helped is just, I, I have a, I try to create a strong profile for myself. So I speak a lot at events. I've gained sort of a lot of credibility in this space because of what we've built. And so that speaks for itself. And then I go out there and I make myself very visible. Um, and I think that that's created, you know, an, an understanding of what we're doing and also has created a reputation that, you know, I believe in what we're doing and we have a great strategy and I'm out there talking about it. I think that it's important to be very well versed. So I read a lot and I make sure that I know exactly what's happening in our space. And when you have that sort of experience to talk about and you are knowledgeable about the space, there's a level of confidence that comes. And I think people can see that and, you know, you sort of earn your respect as time sort of goes on and earn a voice as time goes on. And I make sure uh, to be loud and I make sure to be confident. Right. And, you know, I have a warning practice. So I do like 
chanting like buddhist chanting in the morning and it's just like my meditation practice you could say but it also invigorates me and gives me i almost think that it's like my armor that i put on for the day and it like it's like i just have a high life condition after that and i think that when you start your day with a high sort of life condition feeling strong feeling optimistic feeling focused that runs through the day and when you put that sort of energy out you know it's very helpful in high stress and right. sort of dominating sort of you know situations that you know we're we're dealing with on a daily basis so that's been helpful too right i love that you touched on a bunch of different things from you know being vocal and visible and creating a thought leadership beyond just you know obviously running a company which is a lot of work but also some more personal measures like wellness and mindfulness and and creating that for yourself so that you do have some respite from when it feels like a lot of arrows are mm-hmm. pointing at you and um no those are pers- personally helpful to me so hopefully they will be for our audience as well before we close out i'd love to see on, on a similar kind of note for anyone who's either interested in playing in the space of digital banks or starting something in the space from a veteran who's done this for a little bit now what is some advice you have someone wanting to enter the digital space i mean we're we're lucky if that's what you want to do right now so the, the growth is kind of exponential right now so you're seeing a lot of the european banks entering there's opportunities there you're seeing us you're seeing chine you're seeing varo you're seeing you know payments companies like venmo square that want to you know have a debit product or want to get into banking you're seeing the robin hoods and sofis of the world that you know started with a niche whether that was brokerage or that was you know student refinance and that want to get into banking so i think that the opportunities you know are just growing and so before you know there may have been a few coveted spots for people that were interested and now fintech is just you know it, it astounds me personal loans i think 5% of personal loans were made by fintechs 4 years ago and today 40 50% of the market for personal loans is fintech so good luck there's a lot of opportunity great well thanks so much again um for coming down to speak to us today we know you kind of came in specially for this it's been a lovely conversation getting to know you understanding your journey and we're all excited to see where bank mobile takes off in the future sounds good so happy to be here thank you so much